Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I'm chatting with ASA member Dr. Jess Davies, an anesthetist from Melbourne and co-founder of Trash. Trash is spelt T-R-A number two S-H, and it's a group of anaesthetists and trainees that are interested in reducing operating theatre waste and also tying this to research. In this chat, we find out more about Trash and some of the projects that they've been doing, as well as a bit more about Jess's budding research career and thoughts on leadership. Did you know that the ASA has been supporting research in anaesthesia since we formed in the 1930s? One of our research priorities is the environment and anaesthesia. Others are innovation and safety. I'll share more details about how we support research at the end of the episode. So for now, let's get into it. Thanks for giving up some time chatting with me tonight. We are talking about trash. And so do you want to tell me a little bit about how trash came about? Maybe first we'll start with what is it? So TRASH stands for Trainee-Led Research and Audit in Anesthesia for Sustainable Healthcare, which is a very catchy acronym that my friend and TRASH co-founder Sophia Grubler came up with. And it came about because Sophia and I were both in a Victorian trainee committee and we talked a lot about environmental things and certainly were doing lots of things in our personal life and thought that there would be a great opportunity to take trainee scholar roles particularly and connect those to doing something environmental, like an environmentally based audit. And it started at the end of 2019 as just the two of us and grew to encompass an idea that maybe we could engage people just in conversations and action in the workplace by either undertaking audit and also through what we originally called Clean Up Theatres Day, which was, in our imagination, a combination of Clean Up Australia Day, like engaged communities taking action for waste reduction and environmental improvement, and also a combination of National Anesthesia Day. And we thought, what if we could create something that engages people, educates people, and makes people think about their workplace as a place where they could improve from an environmental sense? So it sounds like they're the two main bodies of work coming out of Trash at the moment. Yeah. So going back to the audit, what sort of audits has Trash been involved with? Well, we started out with a big vision. It was just to count the number of items that we use in everyday practice through a procurement audit, which was to look at the number of blueies, disposable absorbent pads that an operating theatre would use in a year and look at the ways that we could reduce that just through reducing superfluous use, really, like using a bluey as a tablecloth instead of a more purposeful use that's related to patient care. And so what did you find in that first audit? We found that the number of blueies varied a lot depending on how big the department was. But for some hospitals, it was close to 100,000 blueies a year, wow. all of which would be going to landfill or being incinerated in clinical waste. And we thought the bluey is such a generic piece of equipment that everyone in theatre interacts with. Maybe that's a good target to reduce plastic use. As part of that, did you suggest to people what to use as an alternate to blueies? We did sort of, but we also recognise that we are just a trainee group at that stage. And we recognised that we couldn't just go around telling people how to use blueies and how to do their job. But we provided some suggestions that we thought might suit some departments better than others. What would some of those be? So mostly they related to not using them for one. So as a tablecloth, as a mop on the floor to collect a 
LMA that is not soiled or anything. And then some people in our group came up with some other solutions like using a rolled up towel to put in an arterial line instead and repurposing other plastic items from theatres or packaging when you needed a waterproof solution. I see. So I suppose in case if you've got a spill on the floor, use a towel rather than a bluey to mop it up. Yeah, exactly. Or a piece of paper towel or something. Oh, yeah. And the classic one I've always seen is people put it across the chest when the LMA is going to come out. What have you seen as alternatives for that? In many places, we just take it out and put it straight in the bin. Yep. Sometimes we use the patient's theatre hat to catch it. It's kind of like a nice little cocoon for it. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. A bit of paper towel. There's lots of solutions. Even some places cut up KimGuard, the surgical wrap, and repurpose that because it's waterproof and it's just going to go into clinical waste anyway. Wow, lots of good ideas there if you just just think about it a bit differently, isn't there? Yeah, I think what's really interesting is it can be really creative and people can get really excited about the solutions. Yeah, that's good. And then you mentioned that part of doing these audits is to help trainees get their scholar role. So what was involved in terms of collecting the data for this and, and then ticking off that scholar role activity? So I guess we were a little optimistic about whether people would be able to use a Bluey audit as a scholar role activity. And it probably doesn't meet the requirements for a scholar role because you need to have a gold standard and compare something. So our following audit after that was an audit of perioperative paracetamol use, looking at how commonly intravenous paracetamol is used compared to oral solutions. And we found that there was quite a big range of how many people got paracetamol perioperatively, but the majority of it was intravenous. And that obviously has a much larger amount of waste and carbon footprint. And much more expensive too. And much more expensive. And that audit was a bit easier for trainees to use as a scholar role because it involved more clinical audit and comparing it to a gold standard, which we said was an oral solution. So did you have a window of time that people could collect their audit data and submit it? How did that work? We have a website, which is trashwithatwoinit.org, and we had a sign-up page where people could get a audit protocol and a set of resources to help them undertake the audit. And that's really been a key part of Trash is making things really easy for people to participate because we know that people are keen but short on time. Mm. So people signed up, got an audit, and then delivered that in their department through going through the necessary things that they needed to do to get approvals. And then they submitted their results to us into a database that we then collated and looked at. Mm, Great. Are you going to be publishing that at all? We hopefully will be, but uh, it has taken a really long time to get the other side of that, which was a life cycle analysis of paracetamol formulations. The audit is interesting in itself, but it is made much more interesting by applying a carbon footprint to people's prescribing practices, extrapolating that to a year and saying, what if we replace the intravenous paracetamol with an oral perioperative dose? What sort of financial savings would a hospital see? And what sort of environmental savings would they see just from reducing waste and also from reducing their carbon footprint? So trying to provide a practical solution and give people some numbers to work with so that they could then take that into their workplace and say, oh, what if we replaced intravenous paracetamol with oral? What sort of things would we be able to see if we did that? Mm. And so will all the trainees that have been involved in that audit be able to be authors in the paper that's published? So there's authorship requirements, which mean that people need to contribute more than just collecting data. So for those people who have contributed to literature reviews or some data analysis, 
or writing the paper, they will be an author and the others will be recognised as a contributor. Oh, good one. And then I suppose even if you haven't contributed to writing, you're still a audit collector and contributor and then you present it back to your department, that's enough to get your scholar role marked off? Indeed, yeah. Oh, that's good. And say if people hear about this audit, and I think this is fantastic, I want to do a similar one who won't necessarily need to do it as part of their scholar role, is that protocol going to be available I don't think that is immediately available on our website, but they can certainly contact us and we can share it. We have had a number of people undertake the audit and then present it at meetings and conferences, which has been really nice. With those sorts of benchmarking things, it'd be interesting to see if people gamify that in the future. <laughs> you know, hey, our department's doing this. How's your department doing? We would love to see that. Certainly there's lots of scope, particularly for blueies, lots of single-use plastic items, even as a like per theatre number or per case number to be able to benchmark, but I think we're a long way off from that. Hopefully not too far. We've got a net zero carbon goal by 2050 being brought forward for healthcare. So you never know, we may see that. (laughs) So there's been paracetamol, there's blueies. What other big projects have you been looking at? We recently finished another one, which was taking bird's eye photographs of sharp spins and just looking at how much non-sharp waste is in a sharp spin or a pharmaceutical waste bin. And that's been really successful, actually, I think, because we had a bigger network to call upon and a bit more knowledge about who we were and what we were trying to do. And actually, that audit has been led by a provisional fellow called Daniel Brooks-Reed. That whole project really has been a great example of trash where we've had an idea, we've created a protocol, we've shared it widely, got great recruitment, and then we have a trainee leading that project and someone who's going to deliver that as well and be able to share it in a timely fashion. So I think that's a really great example of how trainees can come together, collaborate and do a project that's meaningful for them in their own workplace, but then also get something professionally out of it as well. Fantastic. So it's also about helping trainees foster research and definitely and get them going in their research careers if that's where they're heading. Yeah, there's a lot of passion for environmental sustainability in the community in general. And the same goes for the medical community. But finding ways that people can get something professional out of it is really important because it means people become more active and engaged and also see a way into research that they might not have been able to see before. I wasn't especially interested in research at any point in my career, but now I'm doing a PhD. That's not what people who aren't interested in research do. (laughs) No, I mean, if you asked me like at the start of training, are you going to do a PhD in research? I would have said absolutely not. I don't see that there's any space for me, but I think in environmental sustainability, there's a huge range of things that we can do. We can do life cycle analysis and look at carbon footprint, but we can also look at behavior change and how we connect to people and create lasting change in a community. That's really exciting. I would love to segue for a moment if we can and just ask you about your PhD. What are you doing it in? <laughs> so I'm doing a PhD in implementing environmental sustainability into hospitals. Oh, wow. Great topic. Yeah, I'm excited about it just at the start and being supervised by the very great Forbes McGain, rock star of environmental sustainability in anaesthesia and an implementation researcher called Jill Francis, who has been really great in showing the ways that we can demonstrate that something's actually feasible and is likely to be implemented into practice. And by that, I mean 
become so second nature that it stops being interesting. <laughs> That's what I want environmental sustainability to be. I want my topic of interest to be uninteresting in the future. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's like the goal of public health care is eventually you want to have the need for doctors to not exist anymore. Exactly. Implementation research, I love it. And hopefully the implementation side particularly will help with your running of trash as well. Exactly. It already sounds like there's been a bit of growth in what you've learned about what Trash first took on and now how it's rolling out projects. For sure. Sophia and I, we look back and we look at this first cleanup theatres day that we hosted in 2020 and the change that we have in running Operation Cleanup, as it's now called, in 2022 is massive. And, you know, we kind of expect ourselves to know what we were doing back then, but what is important and definitely a message that I would promote really strongly is that you just have to start somewhere and that you don't have to be like an expert in anything to be effective. But if you're passionate and you take on some knowledge somewhere, then you can definitely have an impact in whatever you're interested in. This is for the budding leaders out there, the not-for-profit starters, the change makers. What's been do you think the biggest thing that you've learned in this whole process of getting trash up and going? Yeah, great question. I would say that finding a balance between starting and not worrying about the detail, but also taking the time to draw on all of the expertise around you to do what you plan to do as best you can from the start would be really useful. Because I can see that the way that we created our first paracetamol audit and the first operation cleanup with a little bit of advice. I think it could have been really good at that point. And, you know, I'm really grateful for all the mentors that have helped me and Sophia to create our ideas. But I think taking a little bit of time to plan, and that's something that I've learned from PhD life, is that planning is life. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That to do a good study, it's actually in the planning and not necessarily the execution. But you can also get weighed down in planning. So I'd say finding a balance between starting and being brave to start without knowing all of the answers, but also, yeah, utilising all of the resources to make it as good as you can be when you do start. You've captured that so well, I think. A few of the big elements in leadership, it's the difference between planning and acting. And as a leader, at some stage, you just got to make the decision. And it's only in hindsight that you think, hmm, maybe it was the right or wrong decision. <laughs> and it's likewise with relating and collaborating and building relationships. I think you get used to the idea that you can't do it all. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, let's go back to trash. Operation Cleanup, when is that day? So the day is on Earth Day, which is usually April 22nd. It fell on a Friday this year, so next year it'll likely be on a Friday or a Monday. So we try to tie it in with another event. What happens on that day? Operation Cleanup is our first implementation project. Our goals were to find some green champions, which are usually a junior doctor, trainee or a HMO, someone passionate, provide them with a set of resources which had some education materials because there is a lot of information to learn about environmental things in anesthesia and then ask that trainee or junior doctor or consultant to basically deliver a little campaign in the lead up to operation cleanup so using our posters and resources they would find out some information from their department like a little procurement audit about blueies how much desflurane they use in a year that they had some reusable equipment that they might be able to swap in in place of single use 
and basically run like a little internal campaign for the department, which was interprofessional education from a green champion with some audit and feedback, which are three evidence-based pillars of implementation. And the goal is that they, as a green champion, find other people within their department or their theatre, so particularly nursing staff, technicians. I find that once you start talking about this, lots of people come out of the woodwork and are very positive and supportive. And so as a little team or as an individual, start to have conversations and engage other people so that on Operation Cleanup, everyone is on board to reduce their bluey use, avoid using desflurane, talk about reusable equipment and recycle as much as possible. So you're in the lead up to Operation Cleanup, building awareness within your department, finding your teammates who are going to help you build that awareness, possibly do an audit? Yeah, I call it an audit, but really it's finding out some procurement figures for your department, which which can be very difficult depending on your department and how that information is collected. But I think actually it's a really key part of the process because it feeds back to the department a baseline and it gives them something to change. Taking the amount of desflurane bottles that a hospital uses in a year and seeing that reduce over time is a really powerful message. And likewise, with the number of blueies that people use, if you ask people to guess, they often say 10,000, 20,000 a year. But for a major hospital in a metropolitan area, you might be using between 80 and 100,000 a year. And so to have a number to work with, I think is actually very powerful. And it is really key to the whole process. So you might then, for the subsequent operation cleanup days, pick the same thing to count. So you might do subsequent blueies or desflurane use over time and track your progress. Exactly. Who, in your experience, are some of the people that you can ask in hospitals for that information? So in some hospitals, it's really easy. You can just go and find your procurement person in your theatres and they will pop out a number. In other hospitals, there will definitely be a purchasing person for theatres and that is usually your best port of call and the nurses will definitely know who that is. And then it's a matter of finding the right person within that group. The reason why it's tricky is that sometimes things are reported in different ways. So Bluey might change brand. And so if you only capture one brand of them, you might not capture the whole number. We might not be able to separate it for operating theatres. So good little tips there. Maybe try and pick an item that is exclusive for operating theatres. And I didn't realise there were different brands of Bluey. So there you go. So try and keep abreast of brand changes, which is hard at the moment because there are a lot of brand changes all the time because of the pandemic and supply issues. I think, though, that if you explain your purpose and get procurement people on site, then they can be very helpful because they know all of that stuff. But if you just go and ask them directly how many blueies have we used, then, yeah, you may not get the right answer. You mentioned that Operation Cleanup is often tied to something like Earth Day, so earlier in the year. How long would you anticipate would be a lead time if you wanted to get some awareness raising going, get in contact with people at procurement so that you could have a presentation? Yeah, I think thinking about it at the start of a rotation is a good plan. Finding a mentor to start with who can help guide you through a department, particularly if you're a new member of the department, is really important and gives you a bit of support in what can sometimes feel intimidating if you're new. Finding out your procurement numbers early is really important because that's what you're going to use to educate people. And then finding an opportunity if you've got a department education session to educate your anaesthetist colleagues, as well as if you can, nursing staff, whoever else will listen in theatres, 
then that sort of sets the ball rolling. I'm sure that time varies depending on department accessibility and things, but I would say that takes somewhere between four to eight weeks. So give yourself enough time. And that sounds like it should hopefully be doable within that one rotation. Yeah, definitely. We've mentioned Jezflurane. And I'm going to ask, it's part of a broader question, which is there are some people who still don't think that there's an issue with sustainability, with climate change, with the impact of health. What do you say to them? And then part of that is also there's some people who love their desflurane. So what do you say to them as well? So let's take the first question. Do you come across people saying to you, we don't see what the issue is with the environment and the impact of healthcare on the environment? Not to me personally. I think most people are scared to bring that up with me, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) which is great. <laughs> Very happy for it to stay like that. But I do know that when we interviewed Operation Cleanup participants, myself and a excellent registrar called Noni Harold did that last year. When we interviewed the trainees, many said that they came across someone who really challenged them on climate change or desflurane or both. But I would say that those people are a real minority and an increasingly small minority and that They take up a lot of time and energy and emotion, and I'm not sure that it's worth it because you're very unlikely to change that person's opinion. If they fundamentally don't believe in science and facts, then they're very unlikely to be swayed by your compelling arguments. And I would draw on a great book by Rebecca Huntley called How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. And she says the best way to connect with people is actually with personal stories Rather than pummeling people with facts about desflurane, how it has a very high global warming potential, how you definitely shouldn't use it with nitrous oxide because then it's even worse, that actually connecting to people about personal things, about how their favourite holiday destinations will be underwater, how their children's health will be affected by pollution and bushfire smoke, those things are much more emotive and powerful than the bare facts of desflurane. Good way to handle it. In regards to desflurane, it's obviously a very emotive topic for many people, but there have been some studies showing that people's knowledge about desflurane is actually very poor. And so fundamentally, education, I think, can result in improvements. People don't often understand why desflurane has a very high environmental impact, and it is because of the chemical structure of desflurane. And so even using it at very low flows, it still has a very high environmental impact. And then I know that lots of people feel very strongly about using desflurane for morbid obesity, but I think that there are some really great leaders from anesthesia who have demonstrated that they use so little desflurane that they no longer see it necessary to be on their formulary. And actually on our website, we keep a record of those hospitals. So if your hospital has removed desflurane or is planning to, we would love to know. There's just a little form on our website. And some of those examples are Alfred in Melbourne, Western Health, Monash Health, St. Vincent's in Sydney. So there are a lot of hospitals that are safely delivering anaesthesia to morbidly obese patients without desflurane. Are there many private hospitals? I don't know of any private hospitals that have removed it from formulary, but I do know that the Desflurane March in Western Australia has been phenomenal, thanks to Chris Mitchell and many of his colleagues there, and that some of the private hospitals in WA have removed Desflurane just from storage on their machines, because that creates very small barrier to someone using it in the first place. It also prevents the Desflurane being wasted in daily machine checks, saves a bit of money as well. 
And so I know that some private hospitals have taken that step and that I think is a really fantastic step in that direction. Can they put their details on the website as well or it's only if you've completely removed it from your formulary you get included? No, we've got two stages. So one is to commit to reducing it with the ambition of removing it. And then those that have removed it can also go on our website and be applauded by us. <laughs> Lovely. So for people who want to get involved in trash, is it only open for trainees? No, we are very inclusive. If anyone from any walk of life wishes to learn more about environmental sustainability in healthcare, then they can sign up on our website. It just joins them to our mailing list and you get very infrequent but hopefully valuable emails from us and invitations to join any projects that we have running. Have you got any projects running at the moment? We don't because we've just finished the Sharp's Bin audit and as a busy group of volunteers that's about as much as we can handle. <laughs> what do we expect out of the Sharp Spin Audit? What's the next phase and timeline? We do have an online convention that two of our trash members, Alistair Park and Margaret Hesgill, are running this year called TrashCon 22. And that is an online event where we just want to hear about any project anything related to environmental sustainability in your hospital, whether it was a success or failure, whether it was tiny, whether you got reusable forks in your tea room or did some transformation about nitrous oxide use, that's an opportunity to share resources and knowledge in a very informal presentation. And I think we'll hear something about the Sharp's Bin audits there. Right. That is something that crossed my mind because you hear about all these little pockets of work going on. Is TrashCon the best way to find out what they all are? Yeah, I hope so. We held it last year, which um, was a great success. And actually, I found it quite emotional because we just heard from such wonderful junior doctors who had done really great things in their department. And I felt really moved by just how passionate everyone was. It was really lovely. So I'm hoping that TrashCon this year will bring some great projects to light. And really fundamentally from Trash, we want people to find it easy. So that means that if you have a resource, which might be your knowledge or a poster that you made, that we have the ability to share it widely in our network. I think that TrashCon is hopefully an opportunity for people to share their hard work that doesn't necessarily fit into a conference presentation, but certainly fits into a community presentation. It's almost like you need a how-to guide for all of this from everyone who's contributing. Yeah, we regularly ask for that because we can only produce so much but we know that people out there are experts in some things. Like one of our HMOs last year, Z, managed to implement soft plastics recycling in one of our eight theatre hospitals oh. <laughs> pretty much independently, which he presented last year at TrashCon. And that was amazing. He was a HMO and he did that. Yeah. So I hope lots of people took that and were like, oh, well, I want soft plastics in my hospital. Maybe I could do that. And it prevents people having, having to reinvent the wheel. Exactly what I was going to say. Are there how-to guides that people can, for example, go and look up on the Trash website? There are some. Again, we're limited by our resources. So we're really helped by people who have done that and provide that for us because we can just pop it up and share it with people. We often have a question of how to get started and one of the easiest things to do is to go around your theatres and take a photo of every clinical waste bin and just have a look what's inside because clinical waste is high cost. Most of it gets incinerated or chemically treated, so it has a much higher energy cost as well. And 
that is one of the simplest things that you can do, which is to reduce the amount of clinical waste you produce. So we do have that as a starting point. And then we hope that once people have done one thing, sort of sparks a lot of conversation, engagement, people get involved and it builds into other activities. Final, final question. I'm hoping you can settle a doubt I have. Fresh gas flows and Tiva. Mm-hmm. You're probably aware that paper that came out of Sydney that said the ideal fresh gas flow is probably about six litres a minute. I've heard the opposite to that in Victoria because we derive so much of our electricity from brown coal and the way that our oxygen is produced and being very electricity dependent that we're still better off running low flow rates. Have you got a thought either way when you're running Tiva? What are your flow rates that you use? So first off, I run lots of Tiva and my flow rate is somewhere around two to four litres. And I try to run a lowish FiO2 because you're right that the carbon footprint of things is often hidden within the energy that is required to make the product or service that we're using, which is quite a challenging way to think about things. So we have to be continually critical about where our carbon lies In terms of soda line usage and fresh gas flow, there was a very small benefit to the higher fresh gas flows, but it is very location dependent. And ultimately, I would say if you're running Tiva, that is a far greater environmental benefit than running a volatile anaesthetic, irrespective of the flow rates that you're using. And I would say that Forbes McGain and his colleagues at Western Health did a really interesting study about the carbon footprint of different anaesthetic techniques for total knee replacements. And you would expect that a spinal anaesthetic would have a lower carbon footprint. But what they found was that people were using between 6 and 10 litres of oxygen a minute for patients who were sedated. And actually that had a reasonable contribution to the spinal anaesthetic footprint in Victoria. Now, I've asked you how people get involved in Trash. They can look up the Trash website. I'll, of course, put a link to that in the show notes and they can express their interest. It's open to anybody. doesn't have to be a trainee. Can it be anyone in healthcare? Does it have to be an anaesthetic? In healthcare, yeah, you can just sign up. We also have an active... Twitter profile, she's TRA2SH1. And is there anything else you want to say to people? I would say that, yeah, if you have an idea, then you should just start it and give it a go and ask loads of people for advice because clinical anesthesia is really fun, but changing stuff is way more fun. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, look at you. You are a leader to watch out for. Looking forward to seeing what comes of your career and your PhD. Wishing you all the best. Thanks, Susie. With that as well and trash, of course. And I hope we keep crossing paths. Thank you so much. How impressive is Jess? I really enjoyed our chat and as I said, I'm really looking forward to seeing how her career unfolds in the future. After our chat, I hope you might be inspired to undertake some research in this area and I want to let you know that the ASA is here to support you in doing that. We have a number of research grants, prizes and awards that we offer, ranging in value from $3,000 to $75,000. Yes, you heard that right, up to $75,000 in value. We offer multiple small grants of up to $3,000 suitable for trainees or early stage researchers, perhaps interested in a pilot study or feasibility project. In most cases, you do need to have been a member of the Australian Society of Anesthetists for at least a year in order to apply. So please do check the fine print on the ASA website. And of course, I'll put a link to that webpage in the show notes. Alternatively, if you are a member, you can go to the ASA website and search for Spark. 
which is spelt with a C and stands for the Scientific Prizes, Awards and Research Committee. If you want to learn more about what's happening around Australia in terms of reducing waste in operating theatres, then I can direct you to the September 2022 edition of Australian Anaesthetist. There's some great articles in there from anaesthetists from around the country, as well as the usual updates from our busy committees. The magazine is available for free on our website, and yes, there'll be a link to it in the show notes. And finally, if you're interested in supporting Trash but not so keen on the research side of things, then consider buying a theatre cap from them. There's a whole range of cool fabrics and funds raised from the sale of these caps are used to run their website and support their projects. They are available on the ASA merchandise part of our website. Again, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. All right. I hope this episode has given you some ideas about how you might reduce waste in your operating theatre. And in the meantime, I hope you're staying safe and well out there. You've been listening to a member-only episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which has been produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. In particular, it has been made by members for members to use privately. As such, we ask that you not sell, share or broadcast it with others. More episodes of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast can be found on the ASA website and wherever you usually find your podcasts. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was created by Dr. Mark Suss and we hope you enjoyed listening. Listening.